Welcome to the War Room. Right, right here, as always, today's guest is Tim Kennedy, the legend. But first, if you enjoy this, if you know a UFC fan, send this over to them. Let them know, hey, here's a good podcast with a guy that you might like. Okay. Tim Kennedy is a former Green Beret sniper, a former UFC MMA fighter. He's been on History Channel's hunt, hunting Hitler, Discovery's Hard to Kill, all kinds of stuff. And of course, he's got a book out, Scars and Stripes, which we will link to in the show notes. Okay, let's get to it now with the man, the myth, the legend, Tim Kennedy. Tim, welcome to the War Room. Hey. Okay, let's get to it, man. Uh, new book out, as we mentioned in the promo here. So... What made you decide to be uh, an author, a writer? You've got a, a a long career that we're going to talk about, but but now you're in the writing business. What's going on? Yeah, I was uh I was frustrated with I, I know like every middle aged man in every single generation looks at what's going on in in their generation. And it's like, what is going on? <laughs> you know, and that's how I felt, and that's how I feel. I, it worries me. Um, the, the thing that worried me the most was this curated editorialized projection of people that we just, we know it is not true. It's not real. Um, and as, uh, as a man that has, I've had the most amazing people around me and from business partners to teammates, like I've got to see real humans. I've got to see real humans do extraordinary things. And we've got to see real struggles and real failure. But even cooler is I got to see these real humans with real struggles and real failures still achieve great things. But then I'm looking around and nobody, I don't see any real. So I really wanted to write as best as I could the realest version of um, what life looks like from my eyes. And that's, that's what this book is and was. And, you know, it's, there's been fantastical and extraordinary circumstances that I've had the honor and privilege to live through. And, uh, and I wanted people to have a peek as to what that looked like. Okay. And so, um, Green Beret, UFC, going through all of these is, um, uh, now I guess a, a media mogul celebrity <laughs> influencer, however you want to phrase that. You talk about this, this perception and reality. Um, when you think of, you know, maybe a UFC fighter or a Green Beret, um, there's definitely things that people from the outside are going to put on you, right? The, the things that they assume about you. Um, so when you were in those different roles, did you feel this tension of not really people being able to perceive what's actually going on about who I am as a person? Yeah, it, I and it's so manufactured, you know, it's like they watch the movie Rambo or the A-Team. It's like, oh, I know what it looks like to be on a on a SFODA, you know, or, um, you know, I, I, I saw the the most recent uh, streaming show about an MMA fighter. And uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, you miss all the moments. Not one time in anything that you've ever seen. Did you really see the moments that make those men and women so extraordinary? And uh, and. You know, like, that's what I wanted people to see. It's not, it's, it's not tying a red bandana around your head as, you know, as the helicopter rises from the horizon and I take my bow with a grenade attached to the end of it and launch it through the cockpit. You're like, that's never happened. You know, but what has happened is failure and struggle and embarrassment and humiliation. And, uh, but I don't know why we don't talk about those things, but like, that's where the proof is in the pudding. 
and that's where the pudding's made, you know, like that's, that's where success is found. Mm. Um, and so I just didn't want a self glorifying story about a bunch of highlights of my life. I'd rather talk about the low points. Um, the high, the high, the highlights occurred. Mm -hmm. So like, let's talk about how we got there. And that's the low points. So I did not serve in the military. I did manage some regional MMA fighters and boxers for a period of time. And so I did get to witness them go through some low points when they would lose a big fight. Uh, you know, the result didn't go their way. Um, and it was quite stunning because I followed the sport for boxing and MMA for you know a long, long time to watch just how low those moments are in that locker room after the fight. No one knows what to say. No one knows how to respond. Um, that's from, again, from an outsider's perspective, just watching it. Um, what's it like from your perspective? Man, those, uh, so Nick Palmashana, who wrote the book with me, um, I couldn't have done it. You know, no, no matter how honest and vulnerable and transparent and truthful that you think that you are, um, you're not, you know, you're always going to have bias. So I couldn't have written a book like this without somebody doing it with me to hold me accountable and to be like, no, man, that's actually not how it was. Like, this is what it looked like from the outside. And what the, I mean, that, that's really brilliant of you to point one of those moments out. Like he was, he was with me in the hospital room after they stitched my face up in my very last fight when I was retiring. And I'm just like, I'm done, man. He's like, yeah. I got, I've actually known that for two fights now. Um, and, uh, you know, I, no matter how many more you do, I'll be there with you. But like th those moments of, of real true, like, you know, there's blood pouring out of my face, you know, there's synthetic material that's like sewing and holding something closed that just happened in a cage fight by a dude's leather gl five ounce glove as we were trying to knock each other out. And now I'm sitting here totally exposed, totally um, like vulnerable to, I, I've been married to an amazing woman for a long time, but there's moments that's happened in the field with my teammates as we've been staring at a tree for three days or sitting there in the locker room or sitting there in the hospital room where I have been the most vulnerable and exposed that I've ever been in my whole entire life, you know, and, and, and trying to recount that and trying to retell that, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a, frightening thing you know it was a really scary uncomfortable feeling and uh you know like one i'm thank thankful and grateful to have a friend like nick that can help me do it um but like like you know it you were there you've seen it you've seen what that looks like the humiliation and the shame and uh you know like i'm in i just fought in front of a million people i was on the card with conor mcgregor i'm fighting hodger gracie michael bisbee yoel romero this is a title elimination fighting luke rockwell for the title and I'm not the champion, you know? I gotta walk into the locker room. I have an after party where there's a thousand people waiting to celebrate with me. Uh, I just lost. Those moments are important. Yeah, the, the, I remember uh, one of the guys I was managing, he was, he had a fight and if he won the fight, um, so it's, you know, a regional guy again, but if he won the fight, he'd won enough fights in a row, He'd gotten a shot before this was going to be the shot that was going to kind of push him to hopefully get to the UFC shot. Right. And, and it did not go his way. And so, you know, we're outside the arena that night, just sitting on a hill and he's just about vulnerable, just telling you all this stuff and frustrations and 
And there's nothing to say because when you when you lose a fight, yeah, you can get them next time, but you might not get that shot next time, right? Those moments are they're, um, you know, I fought for two world titles, and not a lot of people get to do that. And um, yeah, lots of regional titles, you know, but to get two world, like I lost both those world titles, and it's timing. You're like had I fought either of those guys on the night before, had there been a different judge in those seats, you know, and really razor close, you know, majority split could have gone either way. Like, but it was, it's, it's, a, it's a moment. It's a fleeting moment. And that has ripple effects through the rest of your life. And you're, you're sitting there on that Hill. Like I got to walk back into the office. I, and tell him I've been putting them off. I've been telling my boss, I got this thing. And, uh, and I'm going to walk in with an eye swollen closed being like, Hey, can I keep my job? <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. Right. So let's go back to the, to the, uh, before the green berets, um, what made you want to become a green beret? Um, because I am curious the connection between, uh, doing hard things, right. And continuing to do hard things. <laughs> so what made you want to become a green beret? 9-11 just, I was, uh, I was, a. Uh, a young man that was lost and without purpose. And, um, you know, uh, everybody knows the stories. There's a beautiful woman in, uh, in this like gorgeous dress and her like last act of human decency as she jumped to her death. So she didn't burn alive was to hold her skirt down as she's plummeting to the ground. You know, <clears throat> the falling man, uh, it's, it's an iconic photo of one of the men falling and he looks so peaceful as if he's just like taking a nap, falling through the air. And, um, and I was sitting there watching it live and I, and, and I mean, I'm a proud American and I'm watching other Americans that are looking back into a building, sticking their head out of a window to try to take a breath of not smoke filled hot air and then choose between suffocating and burning alive or jumping to their death. And I was like, man, I don't know who did this. Um, but like, I can't sit here in this pointless existence without, you know, a purposeless life with, without doing something. And um, so I walked into the recruiter's office. I walked to the recruiter's office and there were like a thousand other people that had that same feeling. And um, I actually didn't see a recruiter until September 12th. And uh, that was the start of me figuring out you know, Navy SEALs, Marines, uh, recon, Rangers, Green Berets, trying to find out what is the fastest route, you know, to uh, who, whoever our enemy is. What, what is the difference for us that don't understand maybe a beret, a Green Beret versus a Ranger? Oh, huge difference. First is the mission. Um, Green Berets are a force multiplier. So they, they, they are unconventional warfare. Uh, force multiplier means you take a, an ODA, a group of us, and you put us with friendly forces, a, a group of fighters that share our purpose. We train them how to fight. We, you know, know strat like strategic level things that are, you know, at four star general stuff about how to build an army, how to organize an army, how to, you know, use armor and artillery and infantry and whatever air assets we have. You take this small group of men, you four deploy them with a friendly force. We train them and then we employ them. 
That's what Special Forces does, the Army Green Berets. U.S. Army Rangers, completely, totally different mission. Even though we have a lot of similar skill sets, yes, we have to shoot, move, and communicate and medicate. All of us have to be very proficient shooters. All of us have to be able to, you know, do battle drills. But the missions are different. So the Rangers are a light infantry unit. You know, you'd use them to take over an airfield. You'd use them to climb cliffs and and run into Germany to fight Nazis. You'd use them to um, secure a perimeter uh, like in Black Hawk Down. So Delta Force could go in, you know, the Rangers are fighting a whole bunch of bad guy terrorists trying to save their war leader as Delta Force is trying to grab like the, the stories that you've seen, the stories that are pretty public. Those are really great illustrations of what Rangers do compared to um, the Army Green Berets. Okay. And so you go September 12th, I think you said you saw. So did you join right then, like the 12th, 13th, like ready to roll? Yeah, I mean, I, I waited in, in line on September 11th. Um, couldn't find nobody. Find found a recruiter on September 12th, and then the process to en, en, enroll in the military, um, especially in this era, uh, it ended up taking a while. Uh, so getting a slot, getting a date to go to Meps. Uh, I was in grad school, you know, so getting all my paperwork for my undergrad so I could come in as a specialist. You know, getting the contract that you want. It, I mean, it's like a lot. It is harder to get into the military than it is getting into, I mean, the vast majority of universities. Okay. And so you go through this process of getting your stuff together. So were you an officer? No, I went in enlisted. Enlisted. Okay. You went enlisted. Okay. You mentioned the, the graduate stuff, so I didn't want sure. Okay. So you, so you go in and um, we, we've talked about Lowe's, obviously we'll go back to the UFC stuff here in a second. Um, but you, you know, you're deployed, you're a sniper, I believe uh, you're, you're, you're in the thick of it. Um, we've had on Benjamin Sledge um, talking about some of the stuff that they've they went through over there um, and various other um, kind of military types. Um, talk about the camaraderie that you go through because you you mentioned staring at the trees and um, there's a common theme with sports and especially military combat veterans um, about you know it's obviously different extremes but but the camaraderie that you get and the vulnerability, vulnerability that you get, how is that? How was that for you guys in Iraq? Because when you're there, obviously I'm sure at the beginning, it's everyone's kind of behind you more or less, but did you feel the pressure from the public? Did that bond you guys together? What was that experience like? It was surreal to see, you know, like president Bush um, talking about, you know, a specific bad guy and that guy's picture is on our wall. You know, talking about the Al Qaeda network and Zarqawi being the number two dude in the world on on our one, wanted list, and he's right there at the top. You know, like sitting there planning missions and looking at intelligence about how to take down these networks. And you know, you, heaven forbid you turn on the TV, which I very rarely did, and you would listen to you know Secretary of Defense and um, you know the VP and talk about these people that are on my wall, you know, it's, it is so surreal. And then when we finally caught him and killed him and uh, you know, like striking that name off the list and then president Bush, this is a cool thing that not very many people know after we killed Zarqawi, the number two bad dude on the planet, unbeknownst to anybody else in the whole entire world, that man hopped on a plane in secret, flew to us 
and shook that task force's like all the dudes. He just wanted to see the people, the most famous terrorist you had Bin Laden in Afghanistan, the most famous terrorist in Iraq, Sarkawi, you know, hanging Americans from bridges, burning them alive, you know, posing on the dead bodies of Americans. Um, like that dude's in the grave. And uh, that, that president, love him, hate him, war on terror, uh, you know, weapons of mass destruction. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm talking about the man. That man flew over and shook our hands. And uh, that's pretty rad. Was that the Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner thing he did or something separate? Nah, he, something I know he came, okay, something separate. Okay. I remember he came over for Thanksgiving or uh, Christmas. It was kind of a, a really secretive deal that he eventually yeah. got over there for. So yeah, you mentioned camaraderie. It's rad. <laughs> the uh, it's indescribable. You know, it's um when you can have your trust and faith in a loyal. It's, it's not a friend, you know. It's a teammate. You know, it's not a colleague. It's family. Um, you know, I, I, I think back to my very first ODA and, you know, from Carlos to Ben to Dave and John, uh, Shane, it, like, I love them. Like to this day, if they called me and was like, Hey, Tim, I'm in insert any country on the planet. Can you come and help me with this? I'm going, I'm, uh, like booking a ticket, my wife wouldn't say a thing because she knows it's there's no other option. Like that, that's that's the trust that that this group of men have, and um, there's nothing else like it. It's the, it's the greatest joy in my life, and I've had a life of of pretty wonderful joys to think about the honor of serving with these men. So, how does a group like that deal with hardships, loss of a friend? loss of someone maybe in a platoon, not accomplishing a mission and, and people dying potentially as a result of that. Um, how do you deal with the, the downs as well? With it, by each other, you know, the, um, you see really fast when you have these unhealthy characteristics, the isolation, alcohol, women, um, you know, those are all byproducts of like a deeper inner problem. And uh, like the solution of that is that camaraderie. You know, it's, it's, you don't want more alcohol. You don't want more women. You don't want more isolation. You don't want more skydiving. You don't want more, like you, what you want is more togetherness. Um, you want more transparency. You want more vulnerability. You want more truthfulness. Um, when those things start, when those, when that openness starts coming and people start revealing those things, that's like when healing happens and that's when that unit gets stronger my favorite times are after you go and do like a horrific training event. You go and hammer a, this long stress test. You, you know, you run 10 miles, you got all your gear on you. You do a shoot for, for an hour and then you run back and your feet are bleeding. You got blisters that are popped and like pus is coming out. You got chaff in your crotch from the friction of your uniform. You know, you got these open sores on your shoulders from your rucksack you know, where the sling was hanging over your clavicle, like that's been rubbed raw. You also have a burn on your chest where a brass casing fell through your uniform and got pinned against your shirt, but your body armor pressed it. And, uh, and you got the biggest smile on your face. 
you know, and you like look over at the dude next to you who's in the exact same, same shape that you are in just total agony. And he's got the biggest smile on his face. Mm-hmm. That that's, that's it. That's it right there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because um, very much a free market capitalist, but yet I think some of the individualism that comes from capitalistic mindsets negates the importance of community. And, and as capitalists, perhaps we should figure out how to message better that um, we want to protect individual liberties and rights, but not the expense of negating um, this communal aspect. And obviously we're all, we're all going to be at war, so we can't get that kind of camaraderie, but, but for what we can do localized, um, you mentioned. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think you need war to, to have that tribe to have that camaraderie, to have that community. There's lots of different forms of it. Sometimes they're, they're demonized. You know, um, I'm not a Mormon, but I look at the Mormon communities. Like, yes, they have their faults. A lot of them are being, being very public right now. But you also look at this beautiful sense of community where you, know, you have mechanics and electricians and plumbers that are within those communities. They all support each other. You know, like, heaven forbid we ended up in, like, nuclear war. I tell you what, everybody's going to be running towards Utah to hang out with the Mormons because, like, they're set you know, like they have all of the food store, they have all of the water stored, they already have the community. You know, you look at my group of friends, you look at the people that I surround myself with, like these are brilliant, capable people that I'm just proud to be around. More importantly, like I love them to death. Like this is the sense of community and tribe. And that word tribe, when you go back to like the, the origin, the genesis of this country where, yes, we were revolting and being rebels against the British – but there were tribes, there were literal communities that were standing together and figuring out like, how do we collectively, yes, in, with individual rights, but how do we collectively fight a thing? And that beautiful, that, in that, both in the preamble and in the constitution, the we the people part, we, that is a collective, that is a unified effort. And that's not at war, that's not in the middle of a rebellion, that is us together as a people with individual rights and individual strengths and individual responsibility are the strongest group on the planet. It created the first true superpower. Let's, let's go ahead and get back to that. You know, what's the one thing you wish someone like me better understood about what you guys went through in Iraq? I just, I, I pity the, there for oil, you know, there for the war machine, the weapons of mass destruction. Um, the men and women that were there are not responsible for the decisions of why we were there. The men and women that were there were there doing extraordinary, courageous, remarkable things every single day. And the people that they were fighting were evil people. Um, like, should we be a police force? No. Like, do I want that? Do I want us to be in Iraq? Do I want us to be Afghanistan? No, no. You know, but um, for evil to conquer, it takes good men doing nothing. You know, at what point do we say, you know, Assad, your genocide is too much. Hitler, your genocide is too much. Insert the next name. It is too much. And I still want to be a country that's going to stand up you know, that we're going to be the beacon that we're going to, we're going to climb cliffs. We're going to run up hills. We're going to storm beaches. Um, and we're going to beat you back to your capital, nearly burn it to the ground. And then we're going to occupy your country for a hundred years. That's the consequence. 
when you when you break these virtues that all of us as human as humans hold as as truth um like you're you're in for a reckoning it's like i want i want that unified value system to exist where we will stand against evil so you brought up the 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 hard stuff how how as as a society do we have the discussion about um iraq afghanistan because there are multiple levels, right? So you have someone like yourself who's on the ground, you have the generals, you have the administration, you have, you know, the, 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 the Iraqi perspective. How do we try to encompass a discussion around these, these wars that's um, fruitful and also respectful? But that's it. Um, that's called discourse. Uh, something that I think this entire generation has, uh, I don't know at what point we forgot how to do it. We, um, like discourse is let's let's have a conversation. We don't have to agree about it, but let's have a better understanding at the end of a conversation. We may not agree. I still may have my same beliefs that I went into, but I'm going to go in. I'm going to listen to your perspective. I'm going to listen to your opinions. I'm going to listen to your views. I'm going to look at your facts. And then I might re rebuttal them. I might argue them. I might not even accept them, but I'm going to respectfully with a goal of trying to uh, have a productive conversation at least listen to you. And uh, we're just not doing that anymore. Okay. So you finish your time in the army and you decide, Hey, I want to go fist fight for a living. <laughs> what, what was that thought? Like, like, how did you go, you know, this is where I want to go next. Oh, uh, I was fist fighting before I went to the army. I was like top 10 in the world when I enlisted. Um, I, uh, I liked fighting and, uh, the army green berets snipers uh you know in a cage in a ring in a barroom floor they were all versions of me trying to figure out what it looked like to be a young man love you guys is it he wasn't telling me he loves me maybe by the end of this podcast but for listeners um but so from an adrenaline standpoint right so you have combat and then you have you know yoel romero or luke rockhold one, there, with combat, there's obviously the real present threat of you know, harm or death, bullet, grenade, whatever. In the cage, that is a possibility, but it's, it's a lot less. But what is the adrenaline difference, similarities between those two environments? Well, they're totally different environments. They're both different kinds of rushes. I, I don't think anybody can look at like the scuba diving, skydiving, bare-knuckle fighting mixed martial arts fighting, you know, countless deployments overseas, Green Beret, Sniper, and be like, man, that guy probably doesn't like adrenaline. Um, <laughs> you know, right. I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, you know, but it's actually not the adrenaline that I like. It's, it's the cathartic process of getting ready to do those things that is the most fulfilling to me. And then the experience of going and doing the thing is, is, is the reward. And, uh, you know, like I love sitting down and doing my plan and working out my dive tables when I'm going to go dive, uh, you know, for, go 200 feet down into a fjord in Norway to a former, uh, German U-boat. That's you know, like, I'm breathing a mixture of, of helium, of, of trioxin, hopefully, you know, not dying. And that's a, not even. This, this, the dive parts, the fun, beautiful part, like that's rad. 
the part mm-hmm. before that where we're sitting there planning, rehearsing, um, running our data, working our tables, that, that, that's a really rewarding part. And I bet you're doing these things with other people too. Yes, I am. Cause yeah. I, what, what I, I went to Victoria Falls in Zambia one time on a business trip. Um, and I actually had a chance to go see the falls, uh, not on the bridge, like walked up to the edge of the falls. And so it's me because I'm on a business trip and the two guides that are there, they're like, hold my arms. I'm looking down to Victoria falls and it's so awesome. And yet it was so unrewarding because there was no one I could turn to and go, this is amazing. Yeah. The guides see it every day, you know, for them, it's like, it's Tuesday for me. And so, the, so even in those processes that you're doing those um those things uh you are the only one in the octagon or me pulling the parachute but there but there's a camaraderie and experience mutual enjoyment of experiences is so underrated sometimes yeah the um you know loading into the plane packing that parachute um you know like even just on like a static line airborne operation you're like which is horrible it but i'm sitting next to my brother's you know, like I, I'm talking to the rigger, the pilots coming in to give us a brief about the helicopter. Um, yeah, like it's just, yeah, we're about to walk into a Black Hawk, you know, and, and my stick's going to jump out and we're going to go do this assault in this, this like make believe village. Um, but like I'm surrounded by the greatest humans on the planet. There's no other place I'd rather be. Um, the jump part is a byproduct, but most important, are the dudes to my left and to my right. And, uh, you know, like insert every one of those activities that I've done my whole entire life. If you just hit pause on the, the tape, that VHS tape, that is my life. And, uh, and then you just look off either side of me. You're like, those are the people that Tim loves, you know? Um, do you know who Mike Glover is? Um, name rings a bell. Dude. He's, he's great. You should look him up. He was uh, another Army uh, Special Forces guy. I went to sniper school with him, went on to work for the agency, went and worked for some special missions oh, units. Yeah. Uh-huh. I know that. Yeah. I'm of a gem, 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 gem of a human. Um, he wrote this thing yesterday, and um, he was a, a guy in our community recently passed uh, yeah, under similar but tragic circumstances that we're seeing a lot with mental health with veterans. And um, he was at this funeral and he looked at and he broke down the people in attendance into three different groups. The first group, the people in the front row at this funeral are all the people that love the person that just died. The dude that just died, he's dead. Like he's going in the dirt, moving on. But the ripple effect, the second and third order effect of, of what that man's life meant is, is what we see in this crowd. All of the, all of his possessions doesn't matter anymore. You know, like, um, what, what is his legacy? Let's look out that first row. It's his family. You know, it's some of his best friends, maybe some of his teammates. The next row, the second row is there to support the first row, you know, and, uh, and they're beautiful. And when that first row dies, I'm assuming that second row is, is going to be there in the first row for that when they respectively die. But then the third row, man, it's just people playing on their phones. You know, it's like, it's people that are waiting for the time to pass so they can go grab a coffee and go their way. And, um, and Mike very beautifully wrote, live your life for that first row. You're like, that is your closest and dearest families. That's your closest and dearest friends. And in the story that has been my life, if you hit pause on that tape and you look to my left and my right, man, I have tried to live my life for those people and, uh, and for a purpose and for, 
you know, like this greater idea of why we're here. I hope it's what I'm doing. Mm. Mm. Okay. So let's talk about your, your fighting career here for just a second. Um, you mentioned the two title shots. Um, it got right. away. You said you, you said you want to talk about the lows. So. <laughs> yeah, those are lows. That's for sure. <laughs> um, walk us through the mentality leading up to a world championship fight. Man, I'm a uh, spitting fire. My my hands are freaking lava. I'm a rock that can't be broken. Like that's that's how I feel walking into those fights. You know, like I'm uh, I'm laser focused. I have done this horrific fight camp, two, three, four workouts a day for three, four months. You know, I went from 220 pounds. I'm 185 pounds. I'm four, five percent body fat. Um, I've watched hours and hours and hours of tape on my opponents, um, you know, to, to lead into this title fight. I have, you know, 10 fights, a 10 fight winning streak, fighting the best in the world. Not just like some dude that wants to fight me. I'm talking elite athletes that have, that have Olympians, um, gold medalists, world champion wrestlers, like boxers, Really, I mean, just, really just, just real quick here, you beat Bisping, you beat um, Robbie Lawler, you beat Jason Miller, Nick Thompson. I mean, some of these names are, if you've followed the sport um, for any any length of time, these were, you know, Robbie Lawler. I mean, Robbie Lawler was just a champ a few years ago, so it's not, you know, I mean, um, he, Bisping I mean, was a champ. So these are these are championship fighters. Names were champions. Yeah, yeah, those are, that's what I'm saying. Those are champions, um, you know, UFC champions. So for folks who don't know that, that would be the highest level of mixed martial arts would be, um, and, and you've got dubs over those two guys. Yeah, yeah, and leading up to title fights, title fights that I choked on, you know, like a big, huge, all right, that's not a good metaphor. Um, anyways, I choked on it really bad. <laughs> and uh, like I again, walk, going back and like watching a tape of my life and rewatching those fights, and watching fights where I went out and you're like, man, that's the Tim Kennedy that I know is a frightening person in the octagon. And then you watch me in a title fight. You're like, meh. That was like a shadow of the person. And uh, all of that preparation, all of that work, you know, three, three, four years leading up to that title fight. Womp womp. Loss. sucks is that a <laughs> mental block mental mental a mental hurdle that you that you were trying to get past is it just you actually weren't as prepared as you thought you were um i mean hindsight's perfectly clear you know it's always 2020 monday morning monday morning quarterback is way easier than what happened on sunday night <clears throat> the um you know, I can go back into the fight and I can pick moments where um, I don't know why I did the thing that I did in the fight. Uh, it, at the time, it made sense. There were lots of times where I was like, why didn't I just pull the trigger on that? Like, I, I could have put him away right there. Um, and then I could go back into training camps and I can pick moments of, man, I overtrained here or my weight cut didn't go right there or I didn't bring in the right training partner to address my opponent's strength in this regard. Um, I focus too much on their strengths and not enough on my strengths, you know, like, but ultimately 
I lost. And, um, you know, especially after the first title fight, what am I going to do to position myself to fight for another world title? And, um, and that's what, and when I finally retired, you know, after I fought for the world title, I fought my way back into title contention, fought for a world title and lost a razor close decision again. Um, made it to the UFC. Now it's how do I get to a world title? And, um, when I got to a point of, I don't see the route to fighting for the world title. That's when I knew I was done. Yeah. I've heard Joe Sonnen and I don't want to misquote him here, but say something to the fact of um, there were positions that he could have gotten out of, should have gotten out of, or should have been at least a better, not miss not, not win the fight, but certain positions where he just didn't have the want to will desire to kind of push through in those moments. And that for him was a, was an indicator that he just didn't, have it anymore which is weird a, a surreal in-fight moment um for you it's a title path was there anything in fights though that you were like oh man i just i'm just not getting off here like i should and that's an indicator as well yeah um especially the, the last couple of fights you know the kelvin gaslam fight you romero um yeah you know, I, I could go back and pick those apart and be like what am i doing uh But the heart of a fighter, you know, like e e even at 43, um, you know, like I still want to get out there and scrap. You know, I still look at the, the, the guys in the octagon being like, man, I could, I could go out there and do it. But the, the want, the will, and the ability are different things. And uh, as, as, it, we've seen it. It's the time, the time, the time old tale of watching a fighter who has the will and has the desire and has the belief, but then the body won't let you do what you think you can do. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I just got done training, uh, got out of the shower. I'm, I'm, I should be in a Norma tech recovering. You got some mats over there. And uh, I was out there with Satoshi Ishii, who is a Olympic judo judo practitioner uh jujitsu black belt sean apperson and uh another brilliant black belt and uh like those moments happen here in training mm. we're like man i should be able to hit this but i didn't you know um right. i should come up but i can't um i think and that's the point of training is to try and overcome those things and those moments and um like should i hang hang my head in shame and walk off those mats no absolutely not i'm exactly where i should be getting smashed by some of the best in the world and uh and there's no other place i'd rather be and again if you hit pause and you look to my left and my right you're going to see a bunch of people that i'm proud to be around it's also an interesting lesson because people should get to a point to where they're so good at something they can actually measure whether or not they are in uh, in uh getting better or worse because i think a lot of people are kind of frustrated with you know, you know, whether it's business or life or whatever, progressing, but they're not actually at a high enough level of understanding their craft to know those measurable moments. And so what you're talking about is, I remember years ago, I talked to an Olympic athlete and I kind of made an offhand comment about, he said he's half a step off. It's like, oh, well, how'd you ever know? He goes, no, 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 no. When I'm running down the track, I can tell when I jumped that my step was like whatever it was. And I was like, really? And that was my first, like this dude was locked in. So when you're talking about this, how do we in life go about getting so good at something that we can measure 
whether or not we have we've lost a step or we can still improve. Yeah, I mean, it's reps and there's processes and there's systems that exist. Yeah. A pugilist, you know, we, we have uh, what's that painting of David where he's sitting there like wrestling and he's in the middle of a high crotch. Um, I mean, how that statue, like Leonardo did that how long ago? Like, mm. this is not new stuff. So the, the systems of what in, in, in wrestling or judo or jujitsu or fighting, what that should look like, the Spartans doing it naked, you know, the gladiators doing it. Um, like, this is not new stuff. So I, I know we all believe like we're this beautiful, unique snowflake. Um, there has been 108 billion people that have walked the face of this planet. You are not unique. Your story is not original. Um, this has had has happened before, uh, and your feelings uh, have have been replicated by probably ten billion other people. So, and the accomplishments and the struggles and the failures, like these are these are tales that that, that have been written by poets and by um, like fictional and and biographical authors for hundreds of years. So welcome to the fray you know like um how do you measure you go out and you do more work i would always take hard work over talent i will always take more reps and not quitting and moving on to try and be a better version of myself you know like surrounding myself that will smash me on this mat and i'll still get back up and i'll be like all right i'll see you guys tomorrow at 9 30 better hydrate because i'm going to come at you harder mm -hmm. like that's how you do it okay last question about fighting Bare knuckle boxing. You did you did casually throw out bare knuckle boxing earlier. Um, bare knuckle boxing uh, is something I kind of follow quite closely. You mentioned it. You know, a lot of older fighters will say have transitioned. Could we see Tim Kennedy step into BKFC? I uh, know I'll never get hit for in the head for money ever again. Okay. Um, and uh, but I have done. I think I've probably done ten or fifteen bare knuckle fights mm. in. Uh, you got to remember how old I am, and uh, oh, the, the old before there was bare knuckle fighting. Yeah. We would just fight bare knuckled. Yeah, but <laughs> the old the old days. If you hear the older guys talk about what it was like before the UFC was really popular, there's there's y'all should like do like a like a ten part mini series of uh, what the fights were like back then because that would be incredible. I, I had fifty fights before you saw me on television. Right. right. Uh, I've heard Tim Crater. I don't know that well, but I've been around a little bit. I've heard him say similar things about just you know, some spots that they were fighting. And it's like, wow. Dude, Tim Crater and I, we, we were talking about a bar in Louisiana that would, because, you know, he had his gym in, uh, I think it's in Lafayette. Lafayette. Yeah, Lafayette. And, um, well, in, in New Orleans, there, there was like this infamous bar that would go and pick tourists that were in New Orleans and they would take them to a bar. They like pick fights. And then somebody would like break the fight up and then they'd take them to an adjacent bar and the bar had like professional fighters. They would just beat the crap out of these tourists and throw <laughs> them out the back door. Well, I was in New Orleans for Mardi Gras and I saw this dude with like chunked up ears walk up to break up this fight. And I was like, what is going on here? So the next time I saw these dudes walk in, I went in and picked a fight with them and they bring me next door. And I was like, yes, <laughs> bare knuckle fights, like downtown on bourbon street um in a bar with rope rings cardboard on the ground i mean it just smelled like vomit and old nasty booze and it's also like mildewy because it's louisiana and everything's wet and uh, i show up to work on monday with like my eyes swollen closed it's i think it's in my book and um like it, like that's that's a bar that tim fought in you know okay 
that's, that's a dark day. Yeah, that, see, that's what we need to do. We need to get a podcast where we talk about this, all of those old stories, because there are some legendary stories out there. Okay, um, what's next for you? So you're not going to fight anymore. You know, you, you you are concerned about generational, what's happening in the country. Are you an advocate the rest of your life? Um, what, what should we expect to see from Tim Kennedy in the coming years? Yeah, so I opened a private school in Texas, and um, like a children's school from preschool all the way up into middle school. Uh, so like all of the problems that I'm having with the general, like I'm running towards all of these problems. I'm not like, oh, I'm not on Twitter, like bitching and then not doing anything. I'm opening, I opened a private school. Um, when it comes to individual responsibility, I really believe that the American public has to get healthy. When you look at what happened in the pandemic, where the obese were dying at this ungodly rate, you know, like people with, di- with diabetes, heaven forbid we have real social unrest or a real pandemic where you know, shelf life of insulin. We're talking like 90 days. You're like, we, we better get our systems in place and get people healthy. Otherwise, we are in a really bad, we have a populace, a population, an American population that is the least eligible to serve in the military in the history of America for a variety of reasons. Drugs, weight, criminal activity. Um, oh, it's like, it's, it's bad. So, uh, I'm addressing all of those things. Like if you, know, if you follow me on social media or if you come to my school, if you go to Apogee Strong, it's an online young men's mentorship program. Um, we started a nonprofit called Save Our Allies uh, where we're going all over the world trying to protect American allies, Americans' allies. Uh, man, I'm, I'm like a million miles a minute. This is not, not going to be my last book, Scars and Stripes. I love it. I'm proud of it. You know, I think uh, we're still in the New York Times best, bestseller le- list for audiobooks. Uh, and uh, there's, there's a lot more I got to say. Okay. Uh, last few questions here. I'm going to throw out a name. Just give me what comes to you first. George St. Pierre. Dude, a gem. I love that man. He is so sweet. He actually trains right here in this gym. He'll, he'll come down um, to train with Danaher. Uh, what an amazing, pure soul. You want to talk about a real transparent vulnerable human especially i love how he's transitioned in his retirement like he's still a fit like he's still a fitness monster he still comes out here and hangs with the highest level guys in grappling and um, he's still a true martial artist i love that guy is he still beating them that's that's what everyone wants to know <laughs> he still hangs with them uh, yeah. you gotta you know we got gordon ryan on these mats we we mm. got john carlo bedoni you know we got luke and big dan and satoshi ishii yeah like uh you got Mergalelli, this is not a this is not a kind room, and uh, I also don't ever talk about who's beating who in training. No, I know, I know it's a it's a it's a forbidden it's a forbidden secret, but I I had to ask, I had to ask. Okay, uh, Yoel Romero, I have a lot of mixed feelings on him because uh, I, I I as a um, I love his like joy and his energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he goes out and he fights and he cheats in almost every fight. And, uh, and that really frustrates me. It's a guy that I like, I've wanted to like, you know, and then he like fights, fights Paul Costa and you're like, God, that was, that was fun. You know, or he goes and he fights, um, he fights for the title and you're like, yeah. man, this is one of the worst fights I've ever seen. And then like, he fights me and he, he like blatantly cheats. And then you like one of the, one of, one of the, one of the worst, you know, like, uh, instances of cheating in the, in the sports history you know then he's grabbing cages and he's like man i just 
I want to like you, but like you make it really hard for me to like you, you know? And then like, and then he, he walks out of the cage and he comes up to me backstage. He's like, Oh, Tim, I'm so sorry. You know, I was like, you know, no, you're not. You, you literally cheated 10 minutes ago. Don't talk to me. Like you're a good person back here. You have to reconcile these two things. Like who you are in the octagon is also who you should be out here. Mm. So Absolutely. it's like, foreign. I want to like him, but I'm also like, you're a cheater. Dana White. Dana White, great businessman, did great things for the sport, and um, he needs to pay his athletes. He needs to pay his athletes. Okay. He needs to take care of the people that are putting, that are trying to put bread on their tables and have made him filthy rich. All right. Last question for you. Who is the most underrated fighter, in your opinion, of all time? That This could be someone that you've seen on a regional scale, someone that never maybe got a shot, someone that you fought against. Just the most underrated fighter. Man, there's so many. Khabib's up there. You're like, wait, how can the GOAT be underrated? Man, let me tell you what. John Jones, uh, I, you have never seen the best version of John Jones, ever. The things that I've seen him do in training is, uh, you, you know, man. All that talent, not wasted, because I, I hope for the best for him. Um, Michael Chandler, I, I wish I could take a little bit of that showman out of him and you could see the athlete that he is, because, mm -hmm. dude, that guy is so good. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I can't narrow it down to one. I have like 10 more, 10 more dudes in my head. <laughs> Giancarlo Bedoni, like just won 88 kilograms at ADCC. You have not seen the best of that guy. Like that guy's going to win for a long time. Gordon Ryan, like, yeah, he's the king. He's the goat. He could go and compete at judo level in the Olympics. He could go and compete at the Olympics in wrestling. He could go and obviously just win gold at ADCC. Um, wild. Wild. Okay, Tim. Where should we point people to? The book, obviously. Where else do you want to send people to? Website, Twitter. I'm sorry. Where? The American Constitution, the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> okay. We can link to the Constitution in the show notes. That's fine. We can do that. Then, like, I'm, I'm on all the things. Uh, I'm Tim Kennedy MMA on, on, on Instagram. I think I'm Tim Kennedy on Facebook. I'm Tim Kennedy MMA on Twitter. I'm, I'm on all the things. Yeah. <laughs> okay tim well congratulations on the book and uh look forward to seeing more from you in the future and enjoy this conversation yeah thank you sir